My name is Michael Guyatt, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Lawrence McDonald. Lawrence, a couple of times we've done these spaces together, but for those who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? Hey, Michael. Thanks a lot for having us. And I got on my break. I started ConvertBond.com in the 90s, and we sold it to Morgan Stanley. And I was able to you know, work at Morgan Stanley on the institutional side after being on the retail side in the years before that. So we created this product called ConvertBond.com. It became kind of the major institutional platform for convertible bonds, convertible bond research, convertible securities. And then I went over to Lehman in the early 2000s and joined the trading desk in the high yield and convert space. So I ran our distressed high yield convert trading effort at Lehman and one of the more profitable traders in those years in, in, in the firm and in, in our groups. And then as Lehman started to buckle in 2008, I pitched Patrick Robinson on Cape Cod about a book idea because we wanted to bring the unvarnished tale of what happened to that bank to the world. It was became the largest bank failure ever. And it was almost a, you know, close to an $800 billion failure in 2008. The book became a New York Times bestseller. It's now in 12 languages. And our follow-up book, When Markets Speak, comes out this quarter. And I really appreciate you having us on to talk about you know, that, you know, and the, the current trends and ideas looking forward. I, I always love the the name of the publication, the Bear Traps Report. Almost as good as Lead Lag Report, but it's pretty, <laughs> pretty good on that. But I, I, let's get into that, actually just using the, the name of that publication to where we are now. I, I will occasionally post it on X, it's a trap, and sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. But I do wonder your thoughts on if you think the the way that people have entered the year, the kind of risk on excitement around bull market, if that dynamic was a bull trap and what we're going through now is maybe a bear trap, talk about just kind of your broader macro views for the year so far. Okay, so what we try to do is, you know, in the old days, when I was coming up in the business in the 90s, technical analysis was done through books and you would get these books once a week or once a month and everything played out really slow in a slow fashion. Now there's so many junior, there's some very good technical analysts on Twitter, but there's just you know, a thousand gajillion pretenders. That's why people need to follow people like you to kind of vet that out. And so what we found is the capitulation process, like in the fourth quarter around a lot of names, because everybody's doing the same thing real time, it actually accentuates capitulation processes. And we've seen this over the years with oil, uranium or coal names. So what we try to do is we try to buy into the capitulation. We want to sell the rallies, the counter trend rallies, but be there for the turn and not get caught in a bear trap. So we'll average it into positions. And so in the fourth quarter, we built a, we did a blog, we built a, what's called a tax loss portfolio. And so our thesis is that in the, the first half of this year, you've got 20 trillion in the NASDAQ 100. We've got a multipolar world. Michael, everybody is basically in the rear view mirror. Everybody's positioned for the 2010 to 2020 era unipolar world, lower inflation, sea lanes that are smooth as silk, supply chains that are just absolutely easy, and the cost of labor, everything, political risk globally, everything was set up for that. That's why there's $100 trillion, I'm sorry, $20 trillion in the NASDAQ 100. Everybody's set up in, in the last decade's portfolio. And our thesis is that we're really coming into the greatest migration of capital in our lifetimes, and we're probably going to have five or seven 
trillion dollars leave the 2010 to 2020 portfolio and move into a multipolar world type structure that existed before, let's say from 1968 to 1980. The, I'm blown away by the by how levered recency bias has become, right? I mean, then the narrative, narrative always follows price, but the way that the sentiment shifted so aggressively, and to your point, everyone now just assumes it's going to be, you know, back to the good old days, to me seems misguided aside from the fact that we're below the inflation adjusted highs, bull caps are still nowhere near looking like a healthy bull market. Now, that migration of capital, that multipolar world, when, when I hear that, makes me think of something like a risk parity type of strategy, right? Just have multiple asset classes, try to weight them based on volatility, normalize each other. But from an asset allocation side of things, what does that mean, a multipolarity type of investment thesis? Well, just take oil and gas, right? You're 4% of the S&P is in oil and gas and uranium and throw in gold miners, if maybe a little bit more than 4%, and close to 7% of the S&P is in just Microsoft. So a transfer of wealth, out of these crowded trades into other asset classes, there's just so much money that can be moved and can reallocate. And with, there's about, here's the important stat from our book. In 2014, the global population was just around 8 billion. And now we're approaching nine. So we were up about a billion people in 10 years from 2014 to 2020. 2014 to 2024. We're up like once, it's just to keep it civil. Forget about the exact number, but we're up about almost a billion people. But if you go back to 2014, the CapEx trend in metals, mining, oil and gas, uranium, if you added up the entire CapEx trends, the investment trends for all those resources that are needed for the planet Earth, and you extrapolated that rate of change from, say, 2010 to 2014 to today, we are like a trillion, $3 trillion hole. And but the population is a, a billion dollars higher. So the global population from 2014 to 2024 is a, not a billion people. So we have, we've exported millions of jobs around the world. We've crushed the Rust Belt in the United States. There's 5 million jobs that have gone to Bangladesh, Indonesia, all these. We've raised the standard of living in India and in China, but we have also created an explosion of young, new generation carbon consumers. So if you're in Indonesia and you're riding a moped and you work in a call center, you're making literally 40 times more than your great-grandfather. And the first thing you're going to do in India or in Indonesia when you're making more money is get air conditioning, right? Or, or, or get a moped or something better quality, a better meal. And we have over a billion people in India that don't have air conditioning, a billion human beings. and so. We're creating all these carbon consumers. We are heading for an epic energy crisis within probably like five years where we're massively underinvested and the global population is just consuming energy at an accelerated rate relative to, you know, the, the planet's structure today. And you can see uh, some of that front running of energy usage through coal, right? Which is a big driver of electricity for India. Oh yeah, exactly. Coal, the coal names of, we did, we did a very focused piece on Arch Coal in 2021. Took a position there for clients. It's been a great holding. It's, I think the sector's overbought here, but there's just been such an underinvestment in, say, Met Coal, which, which is going to, you know, you've got your Met Coal for steel making, and then you've got your 
you've got your coal on the energy consumption side. And so both of those engines, you know, tech resources is, I think, a great play for the next five years. We've been long it for a while, but they've got a great business in both, you know, the met coal, the copper side. And, you know, there's a lot of companies like that that you don't really hear on the major network that are trading at really cheap valuation. Now, okay, now that, as you mentioned, that's sort of the next five years, right? It, it's out there, it's likely, but let's get a little bit more shorter term. And I want to relate it to any of the space, how Putin might force the Fed through oil, because you put a piece out, which I think is a very well-reasoned argument that one thing that most people may not be thinking about is how Putin could impact the election, not in the way that people were thinking when it came to Trump, but in terms of impacting oil, and that in turn has, has all kinds of implications on Fed policy. So lay out the thesis there on, on how Putin could suddenly come back to the headlines in a way. Okay, so we'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. We were lectured probably... 10,000 times in 2016 that the Russians rigged the election. And I don't know if it was a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of Facebook ads strategically placed in certain swing states. So the media intelligentsia of the United States was extremely convinced that Russia, you know, wanted Trump and didn't want Hillary. And so if you take that at its face value, and you fast forward to today, if you're Putin, and the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been, you know, depleted to a, a real nasty level of national security. And we're within 10 months of an election. And you're Putin and U.S. oil production. Yeah, we're back. You know, we're back up near 13 million barrels a day. But now we're still flat since 2020. You know, we should be we should be at 17 or 18 million barrels a day if we were just on a normal, you know, 2000. Say 12 to 2000, uh, say 2014 to 2016, 17, 18 track. And so, because of that, if Putin really wants to rig the election, the easiest thing for him to do is just pull back production in the middle of, you know, 2000, this year, 2024. And at the same time, if you think Trump potentially is going to win the election, then you're going to have a lot of supply come off in Iran and Venezuela some point. That's something that I think is kind of a, a black swan, a bad for 2000. And it's just not just that. It's the black, it's the, the Red Sea. It's the supply chains and moving oil, just moving oil through the Red Sea. It's the supply energy to Europe. You know, that's a big problem. You know, you have to go around the horn of it, you know, Africa. So there's a lot of things that I think we could have, you know, a real big spike here in, in oil so between now and seasonally. And as you pointed out on Twitter, Seasonally, oil underperforms between, say, September and January. But then you get into January and you, you're buying oil equities. The last couple of years, you, you've done pretty well you know, from January to, say, July. And this is where it gets to be complicated for all those that are, 
uh, assuming the Fed is going to do a, a tremendous amount, number of rate cuts, right? I mean, you're already seeing in Europe, inflation expectations are picking back up while spreads are widening, by the way, between junk and, and AAA uh, with European bonds. But if oil, if Putin were to, to do that and cause a forced move higher in oil, it's going to cause a forced move higher in inflation expectations. Exactly. That's why you want to watch five-year break-evens like the Hawk. They're starting to move up. One-year break-evens have moved up a lot the last like two months. Five-year break-evens. And then that's going to see what's going to happen is for the last decade, every single Fed speech you see just about, the governors are so proud of these words. Inflation, long-term inflation expectations, expectations remain well anchored. I mean, you've literally heard that a thousand times from these people. And you know what? You know, last decade they have been, except in recent years. But we've had this move down in, in, in inflation, but a geopolitical event that's tied to this, you know, nasty cocktail that exists. It's like, if you think about probabilities, the probability of a geopolitical event this year whether it be you've got the situation in Israel, obviously Iran, and then you've got the situation, you still have the situation in the Ukraine. The probability is something kind of tipping the scale and creating a real stagflation type risk where all of a sudden inflation expectations are rising when the Fed's supposed to start cutting rates. That will get you literally three to $4 trillion of capital that will come out of crowded growth stocks, you know, NASDAQ 100, you'll see the NASDAQ 100 go from, say, 20 trillion back to 16 or 15. And that capital is going to go into oil, gas, uranium names, coal. I mean, it's just there's so many real hard assets. And it, in some ways, it's already happening. Look at the performance of, say, steel names. The XME is destroying the NASDAQ, like the last six. You can, you can run six months. You can run two years. You can run three years. There's a lot of money that's moved into metals already, but other parts of the commodity space haven't participated in the same way. And so this is the type of thing where if you get a bump up in inflation expectations because of a geopolitical event in an election year with the Fed that's supposed to be easing, that gets you a real asset shift back to it, like a 1968 to 81 type portfolio structure. I think the complication there, though, is that, and this is my belief as to why they seemingly, in quotes, pivoted their wording in, in uh, already in November. They must be aware of this kind of debt refinancing tsunami that's going to start this year, right? So we, we've seen the same data on that in terms of just the number of rolling rollovers of, of debt, especially by zombie-type companies, which means they probably want to get ahead of that because some of these companies are not going to survive higher for longer, which I keep going back to probably explained why small caps just aren't able, unable to kind of get some real persistent momentum. That's kind of a nasty choice to make then, right? So if you had Putin pulling back on oil, uh, oil spiking, inflation expectations rising, but that's happening at the same time some of these debt refinancing rollover risks are taking place, the Fed's got a nasty choice to make there. You, you just nailed it. Because if you watch the Fed press conferences, and I have a lot of friends in the media, I've been CNBC contributor, part of that family for a long time. Just across the, the media spectrum, when you watch the Fed press conferences, no one asks just the basic math question. If, you ha if you're paying, in November, we paid $80 billion a mo that month in interest. And if you're paying $80 billion a month of interest, throughout 2024, you're going to start to crowd out discretionary spending. And that creates a huge problem for 
you know, an incumbent party, right? So that is something that the politics are really driving the bus behind the scenes. That's why the Fed is essentially starting to ease when they really should be a somewhat more hawkish with all of this kind of stickier inflation, geopolitical risk in terms of the sustained inflation surprise this year. And at the same time, if you do the math, everybody knows there's a lot of treasuries maturing this year. But if you just add up commercial real estate, and you've talked about this credit event, I watch you know, in your, your tweets, but if you add it up, I think it's 2.8 trillion of in the last two years of maturities, 2024, 25, of high yield loans, commercial real estate, and, and investment grade bonds. So those four buckets, it's like 2.8 trillion, 2024, 25. And so and on top of that, you have all, all the new treasury, bond, you know, treasury bonds that have to be sold. So then all of a sudden, you know, if it's higher for longer because of some type of, because of some type of inflation surprise that comes out of a geopolitical event, you know, the Fed is like going to be forced to either kick, kick, to go to some type of yield curve control or else they're going to have a massive default cycle, like a Lehman, like a, potentially a Lehman-like default cycle. Because so sure, many of them... Yeah, yeah, sorry, not to yeah, I'm, you know, I appreciate you saying that because, like, I, I I took a lot of heat for the timing because I thought it might happen entering November. Obviously, it was the exact opposite. But that we're still in that. Not only we're still in that lag effect window, but that refinancing dynamic is why I keep pushing back against this idea that breadth is going to broaden out, small cap going to be the next leader. It's like, okay, that may be true, but you, the debt dynamics don't go away. And Michael Howell, who I've had on these spaces before, has noted that, which I agree with. Most crises are refinancing crises. Yes, exactly. It, it been, the problem with this refinancing crisis is that if you think of like commercial real estate, 2018, 19, 20, the average portfolio was financed. You know, it's the high quality portfolios are financed less than probably around 2%, less than maybe less. And the middle to say the double B type credit portfolios, triple B minus, you know, just around, just below investment grade. Those things were financed at maybe three, four, five. Now, all those two buckets now, all of a sudden, because we're so much higher, you're talking about like 5% to, to, four, to maybe 12% refinancing of all that type of paper. And it just makes a lot of math, you know, not functional in terms of financing properties. And it, it just it creates a lot of problems. And nobody really wants to look at it now because I was on a phone with a client the other day and, you know, he was a, he's a partner in a private equity firm that owns a lot of commercial real estate. And the, the chief economist has been saying for like the last year and a half that we're going to go back to say one to 2% Fed funds and that this whole nightmare is going to be over. And he's been saying this for like three, four, five quarters. And finally on the last, you know, couple, couple of quarters, at one point, they, you know, the guy was almost fired because that's just so far, that's not happening. And then there's just tr a tremendous amount. Uh, at some point, they're going to have to sell sell some of this real estate because it's just they just they're, they're just but there's, there's so many parties that are holding on for that one two percent dream going back to the old days that if you don't get there that's all of a sudden there'll be like a flush and that's probably what happens sometime in the next 12 to 14 months yeah i, I think you know in the, the mistake i myself made was in thinking that the market would see that as a discounting mechanism and then respond off of it late last year but Maybe it's just going to get closer to being more coincident when the response happens in terms of broader volatility, which then brings us to other geopolitical risks aside from Putin. So you mentioned the Red Sea. 
dynamics a bit uh, earlier. I think a lot of people are making the assumption that this is not a big deal, that it just goes away, that we've had pirates before and, you know, ends up done. Talk about what's going on with Ritzy and why it may be more of a bigger deal than people think. Well, so the traffic flow has moved, you know, has been gone through, you know, pretty steady traffic to almost nothing. And so this is going to more so affect inflation in Europe relative because a lot of European commodities and supplies and oil and gas, natural gas goes through that channel from, from Asia to Europe or from the Middle East to, to Europe or from Russia. So that's the channel where it's not so much that inflation for the United States per se, but at the same time, the Panama Canal has had this substantial drought problem with the, you just don't have the same amount of water that's in the canal. And so the amount of ships that they can get through the canals is down substantially. So you've got two of the major, you know, canal sources in the world to transport goods are clogged. And, you know, nobody's really making that connection. Everybody just assuming that inflation magically goes back to, you know, one, two percent, because the rent, you know, they can throw that around. They're throwing that around a lot. But there's just a lot of outside, you know, outside the box type events that are, that are happening today that were, you know, were not happening in, in previous cycles. And so, the Red Sea thing is really hard to map out, but I think it also has to do with like drone technology and like, why can't, like think about 19, think about the 90s and 2000s, like the US always could keep the Red Sea open. They could keep that channel open. Like what's different so today is it's, it's drone technology is allowing these, you know, Houthis or this, you know, these rogue parties to knock out ships. And then the insurance costs, once, the shippers like Maersk, if, if the, the insurance costs get so high to move because you have to insure employees, you have to insure goods. And so the reinsurers raise the rates and then it becomes the economics don't work. And that's why the Maersk has to basically just back away and, and go around. So, yeah, this is it's classic. We're, it's like we're in this multipolar world now. And Gunlack has alluded to this and Bill Ackman. We're in like a totally different world. But. We're at a point where society and the investment community is still in this like denial. And there's going to be like a wake up call moment sometime this year where that, oh my God, like we're in a totally different investment framework and we all have to rethink portfolio construction. Do you, do you think that will have at the margin implications on, on you know, the swing voters, right? That I think in Biden or, or Trump or whoever else on the Republican side might be, might be running? Yeah, for the election. <laughs> God, it's going to help the non-incumbent party. I mean, the incumbent party is doing the best to, you know, they're spending $6 trillion a year. The Democrats have done a kind of a, a brilliant job in a way of like trying to prevent this recession and they're going all in and they, they're spending, you know, one, one $1.7 trillion deficit this year. We're spending $6 trillion a year. We've never got into a recession with the deficit this high as a percentage, you know, annually. I think it's like, we're 3% higher than we've ever been going into any potential slowdown. And so they're just trying to get past that 2024 election. But, you know, I, I think there will be some type of surprise. I mean, like, there will be, I just don't think that the two candidates uh, are going to be, you know, Trump and Biden. We're going to have some type of surprise this year where we have a, either third, a third party gets more involved. So we're really heading for um, a, a different political set up than two parties. I mean, it's, it's a ways off. And I know people have been talking about that for years. 
But uh, the Jewish community has been a huge part of the Democratic Party, the big tent. And that's now that's cracking and crumbling to some extent. Those are huge, just a huge donor base. But so far out. But we're looking at trades. Like one of the things we talked about is for election trades, Fannie and Freddie. The Fannie Preferreds, you know, those had a huge tax loss event in the fourth quarter. They had a very large seller. And the last time Trump in 2016 won the election, that those preferreds traded up, upwards of, say, I think, upwards say $9 or $10, which is close to, close to 50, 60 cents on the dollar. And I think they actually were through that. And now they're still in, in the three cents on a 25 face. So you know, it's a $3, for example. So it's $3, on, I shouldn't say three cents, but $3 on a, So th- those are the types of trades where if the probability of Trump starts to win, starts to rise, the preferreds move up you know, substantially more coming out of a you know, nasty tax loss event. Just to reset the room for the remaining 20 minutes is there. Everybody, please make sure you follow Laura Donald here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left micro request button. Uh, and as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite platforms. I don't know how closely you're tracking what's going on in China. I am seeing the headlines just like everybody else. It seems like another shadow bank apparently went under. But speaking about credit crises, people forget that it's not just potentially a U.S. dynamic, but certainly is playing out, you can argue, in the second largest economy in the world. Any insights on what uh, is going on with China and how maybe China could impact this inflation, deflation narrative? I say that purposely because you can argue that the disinflationary trend is largely because the reopening was a failure for China, right? The consumer demand didn't pick up, the commodity demand didn't pick up from China. That was a a big narrative at the start of last year. Well, that's a great point in terms of like, okay, the deflation impact coming out of China has really helped the Fed and helped the world. We run a Bloomberg chat. So we have a very interesting platform. So we, you know, we don't, we don't produce a newsletter per se. We run a conversation on the Bloomberg terminal with hundreds of institutional investors that pay us to participate in this daily conversation. And so we're able to, we have contributors in the chat that is, imagine a live ideas dinner, right? Where you're, in the old days, we would go to Ben Benson's or the Palm in New York, get a private room. My assistant would be in the back of the room taking notes and we'd have a long, short, you know, this is something like, I would love to have you at one of these events and say, you know, say the late 90s, early 2000s, they really have, you know, great investors fight it out on either long, short equities, credit, high yield, boom, boom, boom. So we do that live during the day now. And what I've noticed is in the chat, there's three investors, two pretty famous guys that are very strong macro. One's very, really, really strong bottoms up. And I've known them, all three of them for a long time. They were really China, you know, real China bears. And they've become, you know, very bullish the last, like, say, month. And the excess savings in China, you know, coming out of the COVID dynamic, that you think about that excess savings in the United States and how that supported the consumer of Renaissance company out of 2021. So China has a tremendous amount of excess savings on the sidelines. They've had this, you know, hor- horrible crisis in terms of property. But that, what that does is, if you think about the United States after our property crisis, that incentivizes the government to push people into equities or push people, you know, too many people have lost money in property. You know, the, the planners, the B in China are trying to restructure things and, and they're creating more and more incentives for equity ownership. And so, you know, Baba, it's just it's like Baba, for example, you're talking about 
through four times, sales are growing, I think almost 25, 30% in the last three years. And you've got Apple in the, in the United States that's trading eight times sales with very minimal sales growth over the last you know, two, three years. And so we have this dynamic where people think it's safe to be an Apple, even though Apple has massive amount of exposure to China and a massive amount of exposure to global supply chains. I mean, think about Apple. There's a lot of stocks like Apple that are really not made for a multipolar world. I mean, multipolar events can really, they can already see this. Like China, Apple's trying to move production capacity to India to diversify. So you just have like stocks that are, appear to be safe. And the media tells us that, oh, you can't invest in China because of China's uninvestable. But that at the same time, companies that are exposed to China and, and maybe, maybe in retaliatory measures, the United States does anything you know, the biggest counter trend or counter response, if there's just a lot of targets for President Xi and, to, and the Communist Party to go after these American companies over there. Which, so that presents a tremendous amount of risk. So I think your risk reward in, say, your Babas or your K-Webs is a lot better than your Apples and your, and your big tech stocks now. And that's the feeling that I'm getting from the chat from institutional investors. Let's get some of the audience in for questions. Uh... Well, the... There's certain, you're right, certain investors have woken up. I mean, the coal sector is, is making, you know, our Arch Coal is blowing NVIDIA out of the water. I mean, the Arch Coal is literally, the performance of Arch Coal is, is relative to AI companies. It's just, it's, if it was a fight, they'd stop it. And so, but what I mean by, when you have $20 trillion in the NASDAQ 100, and you've got like companies like Apple that are trading at eight times sales that, they traded for the last 20, 30 years on an average of two to four times sales, but now they're trading at eight. And companies that are exposed to global supply chains or global, you know, multipolar conflicts that can really disrupt things for stocks like Apple, stocks like NVIDIA. So I don't think anybody's really, if there's 20 trillion on the NASDAQ 100, and if say 14, what, what's almost 14% of the S&P is in Microsoft and Apple, but right, 14%, and there's only 4% of the S&P is in energy, oil and gas, uranium, and gold and silver miners. So to me, this the math speaks for itself. It's just like we're not positioned anywhere near for like this type of new multipolar you know, world. Well, I, I'd ask Michael, but Michael, I think Michael nailed it where they have to stop. Uh, the dollar you know, was too strong over the last year and a half. It was destroying emerging market economies. They've really been talking the dollar down for over a year and a half. And now you have the interest problem, but that didn't really exist a year ago. But when you're paying 80 billion a month of interest, so it's just a math problem around like it's oil, you know, did help them, right? You're absolutely right. Like oil came down, but then it didn't help them. It didn't help them, you know, since the crisis in Israel. And so, but now, you know, you have oil bouncing again today. You're near breaking it. Today, one of the, one of the clients in the chat just posted this chart. And oil's breaking the that downtrend, that downtrend that's been, that existed over the last like couple of months. And so, uh, yeah, I think oil's helped the Fed, but there's a lot of things that could really make the Fed's life difficult over the next you know couple of months. But the Fed has to, for political reasons, in election year, and the consumers just look at the consumer stocks like that actually face companies like auto loan financing companies, companies that face consumers, pet care. If you look at the, the amount of Americans that are canceling their streaming services, that's soaring. So we've got two economies. We've got one economy, middle, 
you know, the bottom 60% is in extreme refinancing. Like the financial conditions for the bottom 60% are horrible. And politically, you're not going to win an election with financial conditions this tight for the bottom 60, 65%. It's nearly impossible. And so the Fed will play politics and they're starting to play politics now with, you know, they're using things like oil as an excuse, but you're not going to win an election with financial conditions this tight on the bottom 60, 65%. I will add, I've had guys like Joseph Wang on before who worked at the Fed. And he's noted to me that is largely true. The Fed is more left-leaning, more liberal, more Democrat in terms of the makeup. So not to say that necessarily causes them to change policy, but they are biased probably towards liquidity and keeping the incumbent in place. Well, I was in, you know, I was head of macro strategy at SockGen in 2015, 16. And we were in some meetings with clients and, and our economics team, we made the point because the economics team was saying that they were going to hike four or five times in 2000, in the election year. And, you know, the realists and the clients that were skeptical of that, and that this is the first time I saw clients really start to look at the politics of the Fed. Because the, the Fed's always been so much political, but what's happened is as, as the debt levels get higher and as the political stakes get higher and higher with somebody like a Trump versus Hillary, uh, you, def you definitely see this like delusion. And so the economics team at Sockchen was like saying, okay, we're going to hike four or five times in 2016. I said, like, what are you, like, what are you smoking? I mean, there's no way we're going to hike, you know, four times in 2016. That's just going to put Trump, somebody like a Trump in office. And, and so, yeah, now we're dealing with the same dynamic. We're not supposed to hike, but we definitely need some cuts to help keep Trump, Trump out of office. And, and that's what, that's, I can tell you, that looks like the agenda to me. Well, if you, if you think of like the structure of the Fed, right? So the Biden team has had tremendous influence over the structure. If you look at you know, the, point, the, the appointments over the last year are in, in the current structure for 2024, it's very left-leaning. And so you have the, a vice chair right now with the least financial experience of any vice chair by five standard deviations greater than anybody in history. And so it's very clear that a, a, a Fed that's that left-leaning, that was structured this way, that was appointed this way by the Biden team is not going to be a centrist, non-political Fed. Well, I, I know that I think there's a distinction between the term politically motivated and biased. I mean, everyone has a bias, right? So, you know, I, I think that's just part of being human. It, it's not, I don't think it's shocking the idea that there could be a bias, even if it's not a, an outright motivation, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess you see the polite way to say is bias. But I mean, these people despise Donald Trump, right? They just, you know, they will do anything in their power to, to, to make sure Trump is not elected the, the current Fed board. I want to pivot a little bit just because I know you got this book coming out couple of months or a few months, I think in April is the publication date that I'm seeing. How to listen when markets speak. I, I think we need a bigger book on just how to listen, period, in this country beyond just, you know, the market itself speaking. But lay out the, the premise of that book, why you wanted to write it with your colleague, James Robinson. And what does listening to the market even mean? Well, we'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. You know, when Lehman failed, the fiscal and monetary response in those years after was, you know, maybe around three trillion bucks of fiscal, total fiscal, all in monetary. And you could argue maybe three and a half. But then we had, you know, we had obviously an austerity period after that with the Tea Party in 2010. And Republicans took Congress by 60, just to some 68 seats or something like that, the most since the 1920s. And so we had this real, incredible austerity regime that came in at the same time uh, we were coming out of you know financial crisis. So it was a very, you know, you went from trillion dollar deficits to, to say 400, 500, 600, $700 million deficits and uh, billion, billion dollars. Deficits. So you had this real nasty austerity regime that came in and Obama did an amazing job, you know, winning that 2012 election under that backdrop. It was incredible. Like no, you're any, you know, any average politician would have not been able to, to stay in office. Now, the current, you think of COVID, the fiscal monetary response to COVID, all in, it's close to $15 trillion. And guess what? Oh, by the way, we had a midterm election now. Republicans only have two seat majority, two. You know, back in 2010, 11, 12, they had a, a very large majority in the House. And then they took the Senate in 2014. So the backdrop is just like diametrically different. Like it's just mind blowing, but everybody's expecting the same outcome. Like everybody's expecting the same la land of one, 2% inflation, disinflation. So everybody's, the whole thing between growth and value stock and stock, like take a look at the EWU portfolio, right? So the UK, for example, trading at 13 times or just look at the composition of the EWU because it's just a very simple ETF with global value stocks that, that actually own assets. Like every company just about in the EWU owns either aluminum or coal or copper or oil and gas. And they, they, there's not a lot of financial stocks or growth stocks. I'm sorry. There's not a lot of tech stocks or growth stocks in the EWU. Like, oh, by the way, it's trading at 13 times earnings the NASDAQ 100 is trading, you know, 22 to 25 times earnings. I, I lose track. So you have this setup where the fiscal and monetary response today is three times greater than the post-Lehman crisis after COVID. And at the same time, we have a multipolar world. So it just sets up for, you know, a, a, like a multi-trillion dollar migration of capital out of that previous old way of thinking. And then through the book, we sit down with David Einhorn, Charlie Munger, sit down with David Tepper, Andreas Steffes, the head of BTG Pactual. I went down to Brazil and met with him. And each one of these investors kind of opened our eyes to this potential shift in asset migration that's potentially upon us. And Mark Cuban did a nice job with a blurb on the cover. We got we've also have Greg Zuckerman from Wall Street Journal with a nice blurb, Jillian Tepp from the Financial Times. It's a really good support system, really excited. And we'll be out 
in out in late March. Yeah, it is available for pre-order on mobile places, Amazon, and I can repost that link for those that are curious. Do you send me Lawrence? Okay, so so just in the final few minutes here, so we covered a lot of different topics. Talk about oil. Let's talk about under the radar dynamics that you're starting to notice. I think there's a lot of really intriguing things that could play out when it comes to gold this year in particular, because I have this thesis, which I know sounds crazy, that we're still in a bear market. Keep going back to after inflation, we're still below the highs from 2021 on every major index and small caps getting rejected to me is a very negative sign. Again, with the idea that every day that goes by, you're close to the refinancing crisis or risk that's out there. If I'm right about that, then gold gets to be an intriguing area to allocate. But aside from the sort of more mainstream investment arguments that you hear and oil itself, anything else that's been popping up on your radar that's worth paying attention to? Well, okay. So first quantum is a a copper, mainly copper, but gold gold producer with properties around the world with concentration of Panama. And Franco Nevada is a royalty company with that got caught up in some style drift in 2000. You know, I guess 2020 to 24, where if you think of royalty companies versus, say, gold miners, royalty companies, the whole thesis was is like, okay, we're going to bring you this beautiful nirvana where we can have enough royalty streams that come from our options on all these gold mines around the world and copper mines, and we can protect you from geopolitical risk. You know, that was the whole thesis behind these streaming companies like Wheat and Precious Metals and Franco Nevada. But what happened over time is they style drifted a little bit and Franco Nevada got caught up in this situation in Panama as well. So this is what's so bullish about copper. You've got 60 countries in the world promising, you know, a three, 400% increase in this green new deal investing, which is going to require a lot of copper for the global electric vehicle. You know, whether it be the, the lines of communication or sorry, the energy transmission lines around the world, you know, are, are going to be built off of copper and potentially aluminum. So you have this backdrop that's really sexy, but then you have these political hotspots in Panama, in Chile that are just like mind blowing, like your production of copper relative to the demand that's set up because of this green new renaissance and carbon neutral 2050, which is probably going to be more like 2090. But it sets up where the political, you can't even, Frank, this is one of the greatest copper mines in the world. It's like the copper is so close to the surface of the earth relative to a lot of other copper mines. The copper mine is incredibly close to the ocean. So when you produce the copper, you can get it right out to sea pretty fast. So this was an extremely profitable project that was stopped for, for political, the Panamanian uh, citizens stopped, the, you know, there's only basically one highway through a lot of these Latin American countries. And so very easy for political opponents or left-leaning opponents to, to shut this stuff down. And so first quantum equity crashed. And, and because of Franco Nevada's exposure, they also crashed. And so I think the political backdrop is nowhere near as bad as in terms of this mine is, I don't think it's going to be shut down, but the politics is just like shut the mine down. There's an election in Panama in the, in the, in the second quarter, I think it's May. And the country's been through such, you know, war ordeal. The probability of a market friendly outcome, I think is rising substantially. So this week, Barrett Gold came in 
with a bid for first quarter. And I can see why. I mean, the management team at, at, at Barrick is world-class. They, they, they've dealt with political enemies around the world in, a, in an incredibly effective, you know, I mean, this is a team that has the political resources, the legal resources, and, and the financial resources to, to carry this thing out. So if they're bidding for, if they're bidding for Frank, I'm sorry, for first quantum equity, I think it's, I think the first quantum equity is a buy. I think Franco Nevada is a buy. They've learned their lesson that, you know, they're going to have a, probably a better outcome there. And I think overall, the GDXJ or the junior gold miners relative to gold or Franco Nevada relative to gold, the junior miners and Franco Nevada relative to gold are trading at Lehman type levels. And so that's where I think you get, I think, tremendous upside the next like 18 months in that kind of, in those kind of spaces. Lars, for those that want to track more of your thoughts, more of your work, where would you point them to? Well, so if you're on Bloomberg as an institutional investor, you can uh, join our, our chat. We'll, you know, we, we take people, we take friends and friends and referrals in all the time, 30 day trial. And that's 80% of our revenues from, you know, hedge funds, mutual funds, pension funds on the institutional side on the Bloomberg terminal. So they can reach us, reach out to us there. Larry McDonald. The Bear Trap Support website has a, a good tax loss blog on it. You know, you reach out to us there and then on Twitter at ConvertBlog. Appreciate uh, everybody that joined here. Again, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live. So stay tuned for that. And Lawrence, as always, appreciate your knowledge and everything that you bring to the table. Thanks, Michael. Great to catch up. Let's do it again, uh, hopefully April, May when the book's out. Perfect. Cheers, everybody. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.